A reading from the book of Psalms. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought me up, brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The word of the Lord. We are doing a series on the Psalms this summer. Don't worry if this is your first and only Sunday uh, that you'll be here for it. Uh, So just a quick recap of it. And so why are we studying the Psalms? Uh, this summer, um, because in the words of Martin Luther, the Psalms might well be called a little Bible. In it is comprehended most beautifully and briefly everything that is in the entire scriptures. It is really a fine handbook for life. So when we get the Psalms, we get everything. We, 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 we get the entirety of scriptures and we get the entirety of what a faithful life looks like. And so in studying the Psalms as a rule for faith and life, uh, uh, we're using this rubric that's, that's kind of like a cliff notes or a, or a, or a cheat, cheat sheet. So uh, you can take this with you wherever you go. And we're saying there's really three kinds of Psalms that we encounter. There's Psalms of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And so the Psalms of orientation are the ones that provide us with those bedrock foundational theological Principles, the kind of things when the psalmist says over and over again, God, your steadfast love endures forever. God, your faithfulness is to the generations. Those are psalms of orientation, saying these are the timeless and unchanging truths that are the foundation of our life and our faith. And then there's the psalms of disorientation that express with brutal honesty our sense of bewilderment when life happens and those core principles are called into question. And then today, this morning, we get to the Psalms of reorientation that address those situations when God acts to deliver us from our disorientation with an unexpected eruption of grace. And reorientation is not just a return to a state of orientation. The Psalms recognize the truth that there's no going back again to the way things were before. What the psalmist speaks to is that reorientation comes when we are, in in the words of uh, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, surprised by grace. When there emerges in the present life a new possibility that is inexplicable, neither derived nor extrapolated, but wrought by the indestructible power of God. That newness cannot be explained, predicted, or programmed. We do not know how such a newness happens any more than we know how a dead person is raised to new life, how a leper is cleansed, a blind person can see. We do not know, nor do the speakers of these psalms. Since Israel cannot explain and refuses to speculate, it can do what it does best. It can narrate, 
recite, testify in amazement and gratitude, lost in wonder, love, and praise. In those beautiful words of Charles Wesley that Amy and Mikey just sang. Psalms of reorientation are akin to what the late French philosopher Paul Ricoeur called the second naivete. And so he spoke in faith in terms of two states of naivete. Psalms of orientation are those first naivetes, when a time when faith was easy, when the world made sense, when it was clear that God was on his throne and the world was filled with his glory. But then disorientation happened, and we lost our first naivete. We could no longer hold to a childlike faith. We weren't sure even if we could continue to believe. But Psalms of reorientation speak of the possibility of a second naivete. A time when faith is recovered, and it's not just recovered, but it's deepened. A kind of faith and depth that comes only with testing. A faith with calluses on it. Those are the three types of psalms. And so in these three types of psalms, really there's four things that the psalmist is saying to God. You're great. Help me. Thank you. And I trust you. And so when we read Psalm 30, it's a psalm of reorientation, and his primary message to God is, thank you. But there's nothing perfunctory about that thank you. It is a heartfelt message of gratitude with a story to tell and a song to sing. A story of being lifted out of the pit to safety, of being drawn out of the bottom of a well. In verse 3 it says, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. And that was the, the Hebrew land of the dead, kind of like akin to the Greek land of Hades. It's sort of a shadowy, dark place that you go when you die, and nothing happens there. So Lord, you have brought my soul up from Sheol. You have restored me to life from among those who go down into the pit. And so to understand the type of rescue that Psalm 30 is speaking about, uh, we need look no further in, in, in recent history, in recent time, than that ordeal of the uh, 33 Chilean miners in 2010 who were trapped for 69 days, 2,300 feet underground, basically two empire state buildings high. They were deep in the earth, in this mine. And on the day of August 5th, the, the, the mine collapsed, and, and a piece of rock the size of a skyscraper collapsed through the mine, and it, and it blocked their exit. They had no chance to escape. And miraculously, none of the 33 miners were killed in this initial collapse. And in fact, one of them who was driving uh, further up in the mine was in a car, and he managed to escape and get out. So there was 34 people working, one got away, and 33 were trapped beneath the earth. And so after the initial confusion had passed, they all gathered in this room called the refuge and they counted themselves and and when they counted when they saw that they numbered 33, one of the miners said, "Holy expletive removed, uh, that's the age of Christ." And so that they were 33, it meant something to them in that moment. That God hadn't abandoned them. And he wasn't done with them yet. And so for the next 17 days, they lived on meager rations of cookies, tuna, milk, and water that was only meant to keep them alive for two days. And it was a horrible ordeal. They were literally buried alive. 
And several times throughout the course of these 17 days, they could hear the rescue drills coming and going just, just on the other side of the wall, just on the other side of their rocky tomb. But incredibly, in the darkness, in the pit, they kept the faith. And in fact, it was in the pit, very near Sheol, that some men found their faith. And so after their hopes for a swift rescue faded, fear and desperation nearly took over. Until one of the men, who wasn't particularly religious, fell on his knees. And he called his fellow miners to prayer. And his name is Sepulveda. I'm angry, Sepulveda shouted. I feel powerless. The men were drenched with sweat and had shed their shirts. But somehow Sepulveda looked grimier and even more desperate than the others. One miner described him as looking like a commando. Sepulveda fell to his knees. Those who want to pray, come and join me, he said. Barrios looked at him and thought, we aren't going to get out. Perry, and that was Sepulveda's nickname, uh, the little dog is what it means, because he was tenacious, like, like a little dog. We're not going to get out. Perry knows this, and so he wants to get good with God. And Sepulveda turned to Jose Enriquez. Don Jose, we know you are a Christian man, and we need you to lead us in prayer, he said. Will you? And from that moment, Enriquez, a jumbo operator, became known as the pastor. Tall and balding, Enriquez was 54, and he'd survived five mining accidents since the 70s, including two that killed most of the men on his shift. He dropped to his knees and told the men that when you pray, you have to humble yourself before your creator. We aren't the best men, Enriquez said, but Lord, have pity on us. Jesus Christ, our Lord, let us enter the sacred throne of your grace. The men knelt. Around him, Sepulveda saw his filthy, sweating, unshaved companions, men of different faith, in poses of penitence and desperation. Some with their eyes closed, praying, whispering, crossing themselves. Some were crying. Others looked perplexed, as if they couldn't quite believe they were on their knees, begging God to rescue them. Prayer became a daily ritual. The men gathered before they ate. They listened to a brief sermon from Enriquez and later from other men too. The prayers and meals were the one time each day that all 33 were united. Eventually, each prayer meeting included a self-criticism session at which the men apologized for their transgressions. I'm sorry I raised my voice. I'm sorry I didn't help get the water. With each day, fewer headlamps, headlamps illuminated the sessions, and those still working were dimmer. So that's the kind of desperate situation that the psalmist found himself in. He was deep in the pit at the very point of death and utter desperation. And so from those kind of depths, he cried out to help for God. Unsure if he would get an answer. Finally, after 17 days underground, when several men were at the point of salvation and, or of starvation, a drill broke through. And when they saw that drill bit, they pounded on it with their tools, they sprayed it with red paint, and they attached dozens of notes to it, three of which made it to the surface. And one of which said, Estamos bien en el refugio, los treinta tres. Which means, we are well in the refuge, the thirty-three. That's the kind of rescue and the kind of thanksgiving that is behind Psalm 30. And the thing about Thanksgiving in the Psalms is that it's so much more than the way we typically 
Think about it. For us, Thanksgiving is, is primarily something we feel on the inside, a kind of inner sense of gratitude in the heart. For us, Thanksgiving is attitudinal. It's a state of mind. But in the world of the Psalms, Thanksgiving is so much more than that. I read one translation where instead of saying, uh, as our translation does in verse 4, it says, give thanks to his holy name. Instead, it says, confess his holy name. In the Psalms, thanksgiving is a public acknowledgement and celebration of God showing up in our lives and lifting us out of the pit. And so thanksgiving is not just an attitude. Giving thanks is an act of storytelling. Telling the story of God's rescue operation in action. And so in the Psalms, when we give thanks, we have a story to tell. We are one of the 33 rising to the surface. And so as a paradigm of how we can practice thanksgiving and how that can shape our souls, Psalm 30 has much to teach us. It teaches us this is what the practice of thanksgiving looks like. And it also teaches us what the enemy of thanksgiving is. And finally, really, what is at the heart of thanksgiving? So those are the three things I want to touch on. This is what the practice looks like. This is what the enemy of thanksgiving is. And this is really what's at the heart of thanksgiving. And so the first practice of thanksgiving is simple. It is telling the story, naming how God delivered you from the pit, and then telling that story again. And that's really what Psalm 30 is. It's telling a story. Twice. Once in general terms in verses 1 through 5, and then in greater detail in verses 6 through 12. And so when you give God thanks, you tell the story. And then you tell it again and you fill in greater detail. Because when you tell the story again and again, you can't help but realize the immensity of God's grace. Many of us have done that practice at Thanksgiving uh, where you sit around the the dinner table and, and someone does the old, all right, everyone say what you're thankful for. And you sort of get a list of bullet points. You know, Uh, I'm thankful for family. I'm thankful for help, etc. But what if we didn't stop there at the bullet points? What if we said, you know, instead, uh, I'm thankful for health. I'm thankful for the health of my son, Gregory. And then you tell the story, well, because he was born four months early and I was uh, as scared as anything that he was going to die. And I cried and I prayed through every surgery and procedure and I worried like crazy until one day I just knew he was going to make it. That's Thanksgiving with a story to tell, not merely counting your blessings. Of course, it can start there. There's worse things you can do than count your blessings. But to go beyond that, instead of just counting our blessings, what if we recounted? Our blessings. Tell the story of what God has done in your life that caused you to be thankful. Because Thanksgiving is, is, is not a list. It's a story. It's not a feeling in your heart. It's this confession that you make with your lips. And we can't be reminded enough that, that the good news, the gospel, is a story. And that our story is a part of that big story of grace showing up in unexpected ways, in unexpected places, and we tell it again and again in a thousand and one different ways. And I'm glad that Psalm 30 doesn't just tell the story once, that it doesn't just stop at verse 5. Even though verse 5, Psalm 30, verse 5, one of the most beautiful in all of Scripture. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night. But joy comes with the morning. 
And what's so wonderful about that last line, weeping may tarry for the night, is that the Hebrew verb they use here for for tarry, it literally means spend the night. So the message is that weeping, if it comes over, it's just going to spend one night. It's just an overnight guest. It's just a visitor. It's just passing through. The real occupant of the house is joy. Joy isn't meant to be a guest in our lives. It's meant to live with us always. And that's the good news that we need to hear again and again, especially when it seems that weeping, that mourning, that grief is a permanent residence. So that's the practice of thanksgiving, telling the story again and again. But in verse 6, we're introduced to the enemy of thanksgiving as as the psalmist tells the story again he says as for me i said in my prosperity i shall never be moved when things are going well we have this tendency to be complacent don't we maybe that helps explain the increasing secularization of the west we don't go wow god i'm so grateful that i live in the most prosperous and free society in all of human history Instead, the tendency is to say, we built this ourselves. Who needs God? We become what uh, Pastor Tim Keller calls spiritually middle class. God doesn't matter that much, except insofar as he helps us achieve our our goals of self-actualization or self-fulfillment. God is a nice little add-on extra when the plate of our life is full of the other things we really want. Education, success, houses, homes, kids, pets, vacations, recreation. Once we have all that heaped up on our plate, then maybe we can save a little corner for God. A nice garnish. But this complacency, this this middle class spirituality feeds a sense of entitlement. I shall never be moved. Nothing can touch me because I deserve all this. I've earned it. I've built it. And so the universe owes me nothing less than success and prosperity and endless comfort. The world exists me to give me whatever I want. And that's the message of much of the advertising we hear. You can have it all, and you should, because you deserve it that way. And you hear that message enough times, and you start to believe it, even if it's not conscious it seeps its way into our subconscious and it it provides a sort of this default setting of how we understand that the world is supposed to work it's supposed to go my way because i deserve it but the lesson of psalm 30 is is that we can't be thankful if we are complacent or we are entitled until we overcome those we can never truly be thankful Because we never realize just how needy we are, how fragile life is, until the roof caves in on us, as it always does at some point. And we all know that to be true. And so if the enemy of thanksgiving is this complacency or this entitlement, what's the heart of thanksgiving? The heart of thanksgiving is giving credit where credit is due. It is admitting our utter dependence upon the grace of God for everything. That's what the psalmist does time and again in Psalm 30. He gives God the credit for his new orientation in life. And it's helpful to just list out the things that the psalmist gives God credit for in Psalm 30. He says, you have drawn me up. 
You have healed me. You brought my soul out of Sheol. You restored me to life. You turned me from mourning to dancing. You, you loosed my sackcloth, which means you took off the sort of burlap sack that I was wearing because I was mourning. And you have clothed me with gladness. And so the psalmist over and over and over again gives credit to God. And so that's the heart of thanksgiving. Giving God the praise he's due over and over again. Because when we do that, we're reminded not just to be thankful or that we're thankful, but why we're thankful. And it helps us so that we never forget who God is and what God has done for us. And we can never forget, we can never be reminded too many times that we are los trente tres, los thirty-three two. We were down in the pit. Of our sin, our rebellion, our pride, our complacency, our entitlement. We were spiritually starving and suffocating. And then God showed up. And when he was the age of 33, you know, give or take a couple, Christ went down into the pit. He died and went all the way to Sheol so that we wouldn't have to. And he did that for us not because we deserved it, The opposite. He did it because that's who God is. That's how much God loves us. And for that reason, we will never cease to have a reason to give thanks. And we will never stop telling that story. Grace leads to gratitude. And our gratitude itself is a living testimony to God's grace. These things are mutually reinforcing. It's a... a, A virtuous circle. And so we say, thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, for everything. And we cannot say it enough. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.